for December 10th, 2018. It's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 545. Ralph Breaks the Internet, a really Proustian movie. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. It's like uh, we all go off on our separate adventures during the day, but at night we gather together in this podcast to uh, have an incredible kind of crossover where all the different characters from our lives come uh, into proximity with each other in a giant sort of crossover video game that goes on to uh, uh, the, the that uh, goes on to the big screen. That's right. We are talking about the uh, second most zeitgeist capturing um, animated film right now after the Spider-Man film that's coming out next week. Uh, We're talking about a movie that came out over Thanksgiving weekend and that we are only now getting around to talking about Wreck-It Ralph 2, Ralph Breaks the internet. I'm Matt Rather. I am here with my great video game playing companions, Pete Fenzel. Hey, Pete. Hey, Matt. And Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. Hello, Matthew. All right, we're going to get into Wreck It Ralph 2. Ralph breaks the internet. There will be spoilers, but I, yeah, guys, contradict me if you think I'm wrong. I don't think this is one where we need to worry about the spoilers. Do you? Nah. No, this is one of those where you know what happens and you still kind of wonder what happened. Yeah, spoiler alert, by the end, the internet is unbroken, which means it's as broken as it ever was. (laughs) <laughs> and that's uh, that's how this movie goes out. But for, but first, uh, we are still in the holiday season where we promote fun things that we are doing, including the Overthinking It gift guide. You know what gift guides are. They're guides to gifts. Every year since the dawn of the site, before affiliate commerce even really was uh, an unsuccessful business model for publishing, just like every other business model for publishing. Uh, Way back then, in 2008, we started doing gift guides around the holidays where we would write funny blurbs and recommendations of of things that have delighted us throughout the years that you or your smart, funny friends uh, might enjoy taking, receiving, giving as gifts. Uh, And uh, this year is no exception. We have a number of of uh, recommendations up on the site at overthinkingit.com. We've talked about a couple of them on the podcast, but I think Pete uh, has one for us this week that that he is going to highlight. Pete, uh, if I like Game of Thrones, but I've read all the Game of Throneses, including all the supplementary uh, Game of Thrones, if I've sat on all of the thrones, Pete, <laughs> are, are there thrones left for, uh, for my butt to grace? There are not thrones, but there are thorns. Actually, there are <laughs> chairs. So yes, if you have someone in your life or yourself who's a big Game of Thrones fan and has read all the Game of Thrones books and might even already be getting or already have the new Game of Thrones world book, uh, which is a sort of faux history book called Fire and Blood, they have all of the all of the extended stuff. They've got the coffee table book. They got everything. But you want to get them something that that is really Game of Thronesy and will help them dig deep into the lore. I really really recommend the fantasy series called Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn by an author named Tad Williams. And we've talked about it a little bit on the podcast before. The podcast entitled The Dragon Bookmark was about the experience of reading Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn to an extent. This is a series that came out in the 80s. It runs ahead of Game of Thrones coming out by you know, uh, the better part of seven or eight years. So not a ton. It's, it's roughly contemporaneous with the first Game of Thrones book, but it's sort of the um, the last, the first book in the kind of fantasy that Game of Thrones is, and a very, very specific inspiration for it. If you read these books, it will change what you think about Game of Thrones. So many of the characters from Game of Thrones appear in sort of earlier versions of this book. And it's sort of like how 
other kinds of fantasy all owes a lot to Tolkien. You know, oh, everything has orcs, everything has elves, everything has dwarves. Dungeons and Dragons owes a lot to Tolkien. Everything owes a lot to Dungeons and Dragons. And Game of Thrones seems like it's a little bit different. A lot of what's in Game of Thrones that doesn't really seem very Tolkien-esque is from these Tad Williams books. And they're really they're really interesting. They're quite a bit more conventional than the Game of Thrones books are, but they, they denote this big turn off of the main road into a new sort of rebirth of fantasy in the in the 80s uh which then kind of became the dominant mode and you have works like game of thrones and even you can see stuff like the wheel of time prefigured in these books uh so i recommend them and and also you'll you'll have that wonderful exercise of like seeing all of the prototypical examples of the game of thrones characters right like the the king who has a red priest who gives him a magical sword and thinks he's the chosen one and is really depressed right like the uh, his brother who has like too close of a relationship with one of his bromance knights uh you know like the giant dude who can't really talk but carries a smart guy on his back you know the the evil knight who has a helmet shaped like a hound head that goes around chasing people and killing them right like, like it's all in here Right. The, the children of the forest are in here. There's a the night. The long night is coming in this. So much of what is in Game of Thrones has its start in these books. So if you know somebody who's really into them, check them out. And if you want to know exactly what books I'm talking about, go to the Overthinking It gift guide. I've got all of them marked out right there. Excellent. Thank you, uh, Pete. And uh, while you're there, you'll also notice that we are promoting the Overthinking It memberships uh, for holiday gifts as well um, for yourself or for someone. If you have an overthinker in your life who might appreciate what we do or you know someone who is a, a fan of the site of the podcast already, get them a membership for uh, for for the holiday season. Um, tonight, As we record this, this is the last night of Hanukkah, so uh, that holiday is, is, I guess, off the table as a gift-giving opportunity, but there are still more. More. There's still more before the calendar turns to another year. You know what memberships are. We launched them a couple uh, a couple years ago as a way for our biggest fans to support what we do. If overthinking it gives you entertainment that you think is valuable, if you think the time and the the uh, the love that we put in to the stuff that we do on overthinking it is valuable, well, you can throw a couple bucks into the tin cup, <laughs> the virtual tin cup online and support us with a monthly or annual subscription. Now, of course, when we started this, we overthought it. There were too many levels. There were too many tiers. There were too many benefits. It was uh, dizzying. It was unsustainable. It was impossible to support. Unsustainable is ironic because the point was we were aiming at some kind of financial sustainability uh, for this uh, for this site, but um, you know we we missed the mark a little bit. Though our uh, initial. Uh, community of members which continues to this day has been have been stalwart and uh, wonderful and have enabled us to do cool things but we've simplified the memberships for this year here it is for five bucks a month you get some extra podcasts that's it. That's the value proposition. Like just tonight, before we started recording this episode, we recorded a uh, question of the week. You remember the question of the week? It used to be a weekly feature of this podcast. Well, we've put it behind the paywall uh, because it was taking over the episode and because it's it's really something that, that mostly the diehards are, are interested in. And we talked this week about uh, the trailer for Avengers Endgame or Avengers Endgame colon endgame or adventures the colon endgame which is uh about um you know colorectal health and uh and i hope you know everyone is uh is uh really doing great in that department so uh, <laughs> you know i really i really tried to stick that landing guys i, I was i was midair and realized that i was just gonna face plant on the joke that i could not land a joke on uh on colon based humor but we talked you should about have the- aimed for the head matt you should have aimed for the head <laughs> oh there it is uh we talked about the uh, the avengers trailer we had a really interesting conversation about about it, uh, about the uh, expectations it engendered, about Samuel Beckett's play Endgame, and uh, that's in the digital library section of the site. If you would like to get that, 
you're welcome to it. Uh, it's a uh, it's a five dollar a month subscription or uh, less if you pay for a whole year in advance. You get a little discount, and uh, and we're working on uh, other cool things. A couple other benefits of memberships: you get an ad free experience on overthinking it. So if you find ads the other unsuccessful uh, business model for online publishing, if you find them annoying, well, you can get rid of them, and you get a fun badge that goes next to your name wherever it appears on the site in comments and what have you. That's um, a nice way to identify yourself as a person who loves overthinking it and supports it. So uh, hit the link in the show notes and uh, thanks for supporting overthinking it by becoming a member. All right, let's get into Wreck-It Ralph. We're going to wreck it. No, we're going to fix it. Wait, (laughs) is is this a movie that's in need of fixing? I mean, Mark, would you, let's just start. uh, Ralph breaks the internet. Would you say that this film has an adequate metaphorical language to talk about the internet? What's wrong with it? What breaks it? And what might fix it? Not exactly. Okay. No, it doesn't, Pete, it doesn't would you quite. say that? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, you have more. To- <laughs> Just keep fishing, Matt. Just keep fishing. <laughs> Go but, for it, Mark. Um, the thing that the, the thing about this movie that is lacking. Okay, what is broken about the internet, from my perspective, is the proliferation of bad actors who have um, really perverted the fundamental tenets of the of kind of the open and free internet and just kind of ruined the whole damn thing for us. I'm talking about spam bots, um, uh, business models that violate privacy, so on and so forth. That really is not present in this. And is it appropriate for a more or less a children's movie? Probably not. Um, the bad actors in this movie are really confined actually to YouTube commenters or was it called buzz video buzzfeed um, buzz tube commenters. Um, and they're nasty people and they're mean. Um, but even that isn't really the big problem of the internet because, um, as I mentioned before, like, well, at least they are open about the fact that they're nasty and mean. Um, unlike the spam bots who think that, uh, or, or the, the Russian meddlers who uh, put on a face of being there to benefit you, but in reality are trying to subvert, um, your attention and your dollars for something uh, heinous and really against your interests. So um, that's my short answer. That's my long answer to your question, Matt. And my short answer is no, it's not adequate. Pete, but you, does oh, could it really be? Eh, that's up for debate. So I want to hear other people's yeah, thoughts on this. What do you think, Pete? So I agree with Mark, but I would put a different spin on it, which is that Ralph Breaks the Internet makes certain sorts of declarations, and it really does become – almost like a pilgrim's pilgrim's progress kind of allegory at times about people's behavior on the internet and it makes certain sorts of declarations and one of the big declarations is everybody shows up to the internet and the internet is this wonderful place where you can do all this cool stuff uh, but if you come to the internet and you have a problem if there's something wrong with you Right. The Internet, there's nothing wrong with the Internet. But if there's something wrong with you, you're in the small group of people who then might potentially ruin the Internet for everybody because you won't do the things that the Internet wants you to do. You'll instead do the things that are bad. And this this has a couple of problems, I think. Uh, and, And the biggest problem is, I think I don't think I think that the vast majority of people, when they encounter the Internet for the first time, go a remarkably short amount of time before doing something bad, right? Like, like, is it like uh, bad in the sense of like either forbidden or kind of uh, outside of the lines of what they think of as acceptable in society, even if it's something like watching, you know, a video of an animal kill another animal or anything having to do with sex, right? Or anything having to do with like, you know, uh, looking at pictures of people, right? That, you know, on the internet, which is a huge thing, right? Sort of voyeurism in general. I, I feel like it's a tall order to suggest that even children who encounter the internet for the first time don't seek out those kinds of opportunities like pretty quickly and then sort of develop not necessarily in a sort of a state of nature, noble savage kind of way, like lose their innocence. But instead, if they want to engage with the Internet in a particular sort of kind of cordoned off way, develop that over time in response to what they encounter when they go out there rather than the other way around. That's my that's my gut reaction, other than the idea that, like, all of the big things that they say are kind of like good, appropriate things to do on the Internet are all like engaging in commerce, which is, you know, like 
it, it's 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 again that's like not really the experience of people going on the internet really right like you don't first i mean maybe it is now it sure wasn't when when i went on it for the first time but like the idea of like i'm going on the internet just to go to amazon and to buy shoes and i'm not going to do anything else it's just like really uh, me are people that are actually like that doing this and why are they writing movies about the internet if that's the case i mean i don't know matt what do you think there, there are i mean that is one kind of loop the the sort of enabler of bad behavior or kind of enabler of our worst instincts though i'm not i mean i'm re- i'm reluctant to moralize it like that or at least i'm I, I think we should be cautious about moralizing like it like that even if we end up in the same place you know saying that they that they are our um our worst instincts but like yeah the the kind of anonymity enabled um um, kind of scale <laughs> dehumanization at scale that the that the internet um, manages to you know foist on all of us, and then also the kind of the the negative feedback loops of of interaction, like the the social media depressing all the teenagers and all all of us really, or the the um, the way that behavioral psychology is weaponized against us through various forms of of gamification and and intermittent reward and other kinds of behavior modifying techniques in order to get us to do things that might not be we might not say. Uh, would be in our interest if we had our druthers um, or if we had you know time and space to think about it separate from the the stimuli which are trying to modify our behavior it does sort of um, it does sort of punt on that question and the idea that you know the idea that the internet is good is um, you know, sort of uh, presented, or that the internet is in its natural state, sort of good, is presented without a lot of a lot of interrogation. Though I guess there are bad neighborhoods. Um, the the uh, you which know, is the, interesting when you think about it, right? Yeah, <laughs> the idea, like, what is a bad neighborhood? Right, <laughs> right. Like, what does that mean in terms of you know who can afford to live there and you know who what? Like, I mean, a lot of people who live in bad neighborhoods don't go there because they're bad people. Yeah, right? like it's it's other sorts of things that make things bad neighborhoods yeah uh, even on the internet yeah so, so uh, the the other thing is that like disney disney cartoons are fairy tales right and fairy tales involve a journey into the woods and so here the internet is the woods and it's it's threatening but it purports not to be threatening right right like uh, the actual experiences of threat of ac- of actual danger in this film are actually kind of cool like when vanellope goes into the racing game the the uh, Slaughter race, yeah. What the Grand Theft Auto like game that you know open world? The, twi- the twisted metal like game. Uh, well, but I guess it's yeah, sort yeah. of like Grand Theft Auto, but whatever. In that, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, in that the there the it's this seems to be this kind of open world thing yeah. with uh, you know, but though it's it's multiplayer. I don't know the the I'm not a, a video game guy, right? Which which may be why some of this film or some of Wreck It Ralph one kind of goes over my head. But the the that like experience of threat is fantastic like she loves it she loves the danger right she loves the the ability to do like fast tricks and to actually take real risks in the car um she like enjoys the you know um the 1970s uh type of of threatening punk right that she that she sees the the cast of the warriors who live in a warehouse together like she likes she likes that stuff and the kind of the aesthetic of of urban decay and and threat and thing and things like that um that's that's it's kind of, it's kind of an inversion uh i mean a f- for a comic effect because she's so uh sort of adorable and so you know almost disney disney cartoon like like uh mickey mouse or something like that the the uh the environment provides a kind of humorous a humorous mismatch but like the idea of being um <laughs> the idea you know if if all of those princesses were on the real internet they would get you know offensive comments on their instagram filling up their instagram feeds faster than the ability of any like moderating algorithm to uh to moderate the the content that that was go- going at them and it does it does sort of um it it does 
you know, sort of what punt on that question. Of course, it's a film for children. And so, like, if you, if you give children the sense that absolutely nothing is safe, um, I, I suppose that that would not be a very good film for children, right? If you give children the sense that you can kind of venture out of safety into some kind of moderate risk and then venture, venture back again, then you have a, a contemporary um, commercial children's entertainment. Yeah. Although I guess one thing that you did say is you mentioned the the thing with the Disney princesses, I think, is pretty important, which is that the movie is really about at least when you think about who is the bad guy in the movie. The bad guy in the movie is Ralph. Ralph is the one who wrecks the Internet. He's the antagonist. And this is a story of how Ralph is defeated and sent to go be alone. Right. This is sort of like the arc of the movie is like starts out where Ralph has a toxic relationship with his friend where he demands a lot of emotional work from her and doesn't allow her to grow into the person that she wants to be. And then the per- the, the the girl goes off on this adventure into the Internet and then the sort of uh, jealous man child friend follows her and tries to harangue her and stop her at every opportunity until he en- enlarges himself into a world destroying monster and has to be kind of cowed, humiliated and expelled from the society in order for everything to be okay. Uh, And so in that sense, it's the one example of what the princesses would experience, which is that it is, it does seem to be this idea of, you know, men with no boundaries who are way, way, way too solicitous of the women in their lives are a huge problem on the internet. That much I think the movie gets right, Uh, you know, in in that sense, in that like, uh, now the idea that it is the single insecurity that exists among people on the internet and everybody else on the internet is just trying to have a good time is maybe a little bit, not, not so much, but, uh, but this idea that, um, Vanellope, that this is a movie about Vanellope overcoming a stalker. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll say this, I'll, I'll float this idea. And this is when we talked about Wreck-It Ralph the first time I had the same question. Uh, and it was, I think it's more important to this movie than it is to Wreck-It Ralph 1, which I loved. And I love Wreck-It Ralph 1. And I, I like this movie, but I, I kind of made me sad, uh, which I think is kind of the point in certain ways. But it's like, it's a movie that's engineered to make children happy and adults sad, I think, which is like a hard kind of like, uh, sort of like the opposite of Shrek. No, I don't know. Uh, which is engineered to make adults happy and children, no, children like it too. But but here's the question, right? What's the age difference in sort of developmental age? between Ralph and Vanellope. Is Ralph Vanellope's father or big brother figure? Or are they like a potential couple? Because Ralph sure spends a lot of energy trying to hang around Vanellope all the time. And I feel like it either is a relationship of where like Ralph doesn't really think that Vanellope should be out there alone because Vanellope is a child, or Ralph wants to possess her because Vanellope is like a love interest. Uh, and, and I feel like the movie sometimes feels like one and sometimes feels like the other. And it feels kind of important to pick one. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I mean, yeah. so, so it, in gotta your... say neither. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Neither. They're both at a childlike level. They're children who are like 35 years old and Ralph is like seven feet tall, but he's still a child. So Mark, Mark can you unpack that a little bit? Well, neither of them have uh, fully developed concepts of themselves or the outside world. Um, okay. Which is like, I guess, my shorthand about for, for a definition for adulthood. Um, Ralph is by no means a father, right? He is like it's supremely simplistic and childlike in his world. In his worldview, um, his sense of responsibility is extremely narrow. Um, like, I mean, Vanellope um, has a very small set of, set of concerns around um, seeking out um, novel experiences, right? She wants to like go fast and not go on the same three tracks all the time. Um, they're, they're children, right? That's how I read it. It's like as a sort of a sibling relationship. I, I hear what you're saying, Pete, and that there's like the weird sort of father daughter sort of thing going on or some like kind of, um, romantic sexual ish sort of thing going on. So it doesn't really quite map to a sibling sort of thing, but I, I can't help but to read both of them as children. It's yeah. a, I, I feel like, I feel the same way. They're, they're specifically, they're like latency children. They're post Oedipal pre-adolescent uh, children, but Vanellope hits adolescence in this movie, right? And like, oh, there you go. and starts to have, uh, right? And because they were sort of, and so she kind of starts to develop beyond Ralph, um, and he he has been sort of because of his his physical size, like has been the kind of uh, protector one, and maybe maybe 
you know, that was just kind of a fantasy of his, but like that's his self conception. And he, he doesn't have a, a context or a framework for understanding, um, that she doesn't need that. Uh, and that actually she wants to kind of develop beyond the, the relationship that they had before or develop beyond her previous state. Uh, and he can only see it. He, he, you know, like a child, he can only see it in terms of loss, um, loss to himself, uh, rather than her, her own good. But it does, he does get, uh, super stalkerish, right? Like his sort of neediness does, does like, I, I don't think that that's a stable metaphor. I think what, what I propose is kind of the most generous reading of the, of the relationship. And I mean, probably the one that is close to how the plot is supposed to work. But Pete, I, I feel like what you're saying happens a lot uh, at the level of, of kind of tone and emphasis. Um, it's, you know, Ralph's, uh, Ralph's um, physical strength, his kind of brute strength, his, uh, his sort of toxic masculinity, if you will, though it is kind of, it's kind of projected as the, it's kind of like red as that without necessarily really, being that um and and like that 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 like that those things kind of um militate in the direction of the of the reading that that you're proposing so like on the level of on the level of of plot on the level of uh of um what uh racy or uh or of of fabula Right of of kind of story just as plot, um, the telling of this story. Uh, it's it's the reading Mark and I are talking about, but on the level of like of um, discourse of like discourse and like uh, the kind of the the manner in which the story the story is told. These these sort of darker things, these darker things come into play. I mean, even in the plot, right? It's not that he has to go off and be alone. It's that. Uh, he has to be able to hold the relationship without um, without having it physically present all the time, right? Which is actually something a lot of adults have trouble. That's <laughs> with true. Yeah, yeah. Even that, like the that the relationship, the the connection, the importance, the emotional closeness, the friendship, the warmth, the you know, the whatever, all that still exists without having the other person physically present all the time because they are a separate individual and need to need to go go to their life. And I'm actually like I'm drawn back to thinking about Badanon. Which is not really an issue in this film, but the idea that like there is a trauma at the center of Ralph's character that needs to be, you know, that needs to be kind of recovered from and treated, right, is something not uh, not explicitly brought up in this movie. But you could say that for Ralph, the journey is from needing that to come externally. Uh, from needing that to come externally to being able to provide some sort of self-care. So the idea is that the first Wreck-It Ralph is about how Ralph looks around him and he sees reflected back to him by everybody else that he's a villain. Right. And because of this, he has emotional crisis because yeah. he doesn't, you know, internalizing the idea that everybody hates you is a problem. That's like a tough social situation. And it creates kind of an untenable mental state that introduces a lot of problems. And the arc and record Ralph one is Ralph goes from looking outside of himself and seeing everybody against him to looking outside of himself and seeing that actually people kind of like him and he actually can find validation from other people and he can find a way of belonging in in having it mirrored back to him that he is not necessarily intrinsically bad. Uh, and then Wreck-It Ralph 2 is Ralph ha- looks around himself and he sees the situation that he wants, but there's something that's internal that he's internalized from uh, being a, a skyscraper destroyer for 30 years. <laughs> this And also from being a hated villain for 30 years, you know, that, that nobody really likes him. And, he, and if anybody likes him, he needs to hold on to him. Right. And also because he's been put in this, uh, you know, Sisyphean situation where, you know, or this uh, where he does the same thing over and over and over again, he's kind of internalized that. And he always wants to do the same thing over and over and over again. And that's also kind of a wound that these two things are kind of a wound and that this is a movie where which if Ralph were 
really the sort of hero of the movie, which I'm, I don't know if the movie really goes all the way there, then Ralph would find some way to heal these things by the end of the movie. And I guess it might be the kind of thing where at the end of the movie we're supposed to believe that he has, but I'm not sure if if I sort of pick it up. And that might just be because the movie spins its wheels a little bit. Um but yeah, but you're, so that's what. So I'm just sort of restating what you're saying before, just to kind of get on the same page about it, which is that like, Ralph, Wreck It Ralph one is about being liked by others, and Wreck It Ralph two is about being loathed by yourself, um, and I guess or loathed by others versus loathed by yourself, mm. uh, and, and sort of how you can manage relationships with other people in the context of having this sort of problem in in the heart of your in your in your core of your being, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting. I mean, the thing that for me. When you, I love, I love what you're saying about this idea of like the what the fa- what is the term you use the fabulae. Oh yeah, um, sorry. Let me let me do some quick. Uh, make sure I was using those literary critical terms right. But like the um, there are two dichotomies that I'm familiar with. One is the uh, fabula and sujet, which sounds. Eastern European to me. Um, but the idea of like there is a story and then there is a kind of instantiation of the story. There's the kind of the skeleton of the story and then the kind of the, the, uh, the meat of the incarnation or, uh, Rescian discours, which is some, which, which are French terms that I'm familiar with from Proust scholarship where in the, uh, in Proust, there are parts where he's telling the story, and then there are parts where the narrator is just expounding on random philosophical, <laughs> not random, but <laughs> uh, related philosophical things that that uh, that come to mind. The idea being that there is a kind of there is a map, and then there is a territory, and that like uh, some some things can work at the level of map, but the territory kind of belies them. This is a really Proustian movie, isn't it? <laughs> a little bit. It really is. Like all about the remembrance of the root beer is like the incident with the root beer tapper, right? It's like the sort of memory that carries forward through everything that happens in the, throughout all the different years and, and worlds that they inhabit. This idea that Ralph has this notion of this perfect moment that he wants to reclaim, but that the world kind of never really abided. That's really interesting. Uh, but go, going back to uh, uh, and feel free to jump back to Proust at any time, of course. But but cashing out what we were saying before in terms of what Fabula and Sujet, uh, if the story, one of the elements of the 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 manner of the story, as opposed to the sort of uh, mechanism of the story or whatever, the Sujet rather than the Fabula or whatever it is, is giant red Ralph as this symbol. And, and I I felt like it was for me, it was hard to read that symbol without considering red pill, right? That uh-huh. like that, that res- this is Ralph taking a, the red pill. And for those of you who are blessedly ignorant, I apologize for shattering your ignorance of such things. But, uh, but the idea that on the internet, you know, there are communities of, of men who, uh, do kind of isolate themselves and, uh, purport towards, you know, political and social agendas that tend to be very hostile and nasty to women. Uh, and um, the the way to describe it on their own terms is, of course, like men's rights activism. Uh, and again, like we could have a whole other conversation about this whole thing. But that the, that the movie is primarily concerned with the aspect of the men's rights activist movement online uh, that is full of stalkers, right? That is like men who insist that because they have been wronged in the past, they will now like go out and attack women and threaten them because of it. And this is sort of one dimension of that whole kind of area of discourse. And this sort of uh, central metaphor that is you or central comparison rather that is used uh, the the sort of um, sim- symbol symbolic vocabulary that is used by this movement is the scene with Lawrence Fishburne in The Matrix, right, where he says, "Oh, you know, do you want to take the red pill or the blue pill? Do you want to take the blue pill and go back to your regular life, or do you want to take the red pill and go into and see how the Matrix works?" And the the supposition is that if you quote unquote take the red pill, you will realize that you know women are evil manipulators who control and debase men, and that feminism is about you know slavery for men and and all sorts of weird stuff uh but i kind of felt and again i'm not i'm not even making an effort to try to represent these arguments for their own sake i'm not interested in that and the movie's not interested in it but i do think the movie is interested in portraying them as bad guys or at least like associating with them like making that shrek like wink at the adults in the room and saying like that's who this is right the the ralph who is so insecure right that he turns red 
Uh, and that the fact that there's millions of him and they're all fat and they're all lonely and they all are unkempt and poorly dressed and they destroy the entire Internet where everyone else is trying to have a good time by chasing after and stalking women uh, is it seems pretty on the nose to me <laughs> in terms of a critique of this particular kind of stuff. Right. And I this is this includes a wide variety of different kinds. I mean, the the. The evidence that you could cite to say, like, well, in this scene, it's sort of like this. And in this scene, it's sort of like this. It would be way too long. But it is interesting to that's that's sort of the monkey wrench for me is that I get what you're saying about this being a movie for children, about how children need to learn to treat their friends when children approach adolescence, they need to learn to treat their friends as different individuals from themselves and that this is part of growing up and that being overly possessive of your friends as you enter into adolescence uh, takes you down some dark paths that you don't want to go down and ultimately hurts your friends. And that's the important thing is that if you're overly possessive of your friends as they grow up and as you grow up, then you hurt them and you hurt yourself. I can see that as a lesson for children, but the way that it's represented seems to me to be so much a political and and social commentary on this specific adult phenomenon. Now, granted, a lot of the people doing this are young, right? A lot of people involved in this are teenagers in their 20s, people in adolescence, people not far out of adolescence. A surprisingly large amount of this movement is consists of young people. And in that sense, there's a lot you could unpack that's kind of relational and related. But but the the, the thing is that just for me, it confounds the idea of this being an instructional story for children that it also seems like a kind of um, polemic against a particular sort of adult Internet problem. Yeah. And that these this is sort of an example of what you guys are talking about when you're saying that, like, the story doesn't really go all the way and cashing out all its ideas in like a coherent way, uh, so on and so forth. Yeah. So the, all the metaphors aren't like really well aligned. So along that that thread. Um, so if we. If we keep writing this notion of like the red pill and the the toxic male masculinity on the internet, um, how does the King Kong imagery fit in or not fit in with this idea? So just so for those who haven't seen it, right? What we're talking about here is like at the end of the movie, Ralph unleashes this virus on the internet and it causes you know this whole you know red Ralph monster to appear, and it's like you know an enormous Ralph that's made up of a bunch of small Ralphs, um, and at some point, uh, monster Ralph grabs Vanellope and climbs up a tower, which just happens to be the Google Tower. I don't think it's, there's a whole lot to read into that, but Pete, if you disagree, let me know. Um, anyway, so he climbs up the tower. He's got Vanellope in hand. It is clearly a King Kong reference visually, right? But storytelling wise, I don't think it makes sense, right? Because um, maybe I'm reading King Kong wrong, but I think that's more about how, like, you know, King Kong is is a victim and how, you know, he, he's this poor, exploited creature. Um, but in in the record, Ralph, like that, the monster Ralph is clearly a villain, a a a straight up horror show that should be repulsive. And it's OK that we're repulsed by that. Um, so Pete, my question to you is like, what is going on with the King Kong stuff? Yeah. I mean, part, part of me wants to say that it has to do with some sort of, uh, feud between Disney and universal. <laughs> These days, like whenever, so, whenever something happens in a Disney movie where they just take some sort of weird left turn and I don't know what's going on, I assume that it's some other division of Disney that told them to put it in the movie that it's like, look, if you can establish some sort of depiction of a giant ape climbing a skyscraper and they don't challenge it in court, we can make a King Kong ride at Disney World. <laughs> like it's uh, you just have to sneak it by and they have to not contest it. Uh, something along those lines that's probably not entirely fair but certainly that disney would see the trademark universal movie icon as a villain is is not too much of a stretch but i I guess it's the idea that king kong is this um this massive violent masculinity like it's not it doesn't seem to me too i guess it is a little bit concerned this again goes back to the idea of like how much do you think the movie is on ralph's side in all this i feel like it isn't but I also might just be taking it personally uh, because I identify with Ralph personally and I don't like it that he has to be alone. Uh, but uh, although, of course, he's not alone, he gets to hang out with all those couples with children. That's that's not a lonely experience at all. Uh, but um, but there's this idea that um, that that uh, Ralph, that King Kong, as you mentioned, is a misunderstood creature who is bestial and has this iconic imagery with this woman where the sort of male violence and the female vulnerability are in like very, very sharp juxtaposition. 
that, that this is a this is a Mr. Bates situation, right? Like from Downton uh, Abbey. We talked about Downton Abbey so much. You know what I'm talking about, right, Matt? In terms yeah. of the Mr. Bates from Downton no, Abbey situation. But, but un- unpack it, man. It's it's been a while since we talked about Downton yeah. Abbey, and I miss it. Yeah. So in Downton Abbey, uh, two of the central characters in Downton Abbey are Anna and Mr. Bates. Anna is uh, a high-ranking maid, and Mr. Bates is a valet. Uh, Mr. Bates is an old war hero of the Earl or war buddy of the Earl. And he is uh, uh, he has a limp. He has a war injury. So he is not necessarily the most kind of confident guy. He kind of hobbles around and he speaks very softly. And and there's this whole season and and Anna and Mr. Bates, you know, fall in love. She's the sort of pretty and shy blonde maid. And she's really sophisticated, but isn't really like moving on in the world like some of her colleagues are. Uh, I should say she's rather she's really smart. She's not really sophisticated. She's very smart. And then Mr. Bates is like is is talked about as this sort of like noble, quiet, hardworking dude who like nobody really likes because he has this shady past and that nobody really understands. But she sees what's good in him and they get together. And then like two thirds of the way through Downton Abbey, their relationship takes this like sharp turn where it becomes all about rape and murder. And like she gets she gets raped and like he has a violent relationship with his old wife right and 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 um and one of the uh and and so the downton abbey kind of confronts this idea of really horrendous violence of men towards women and the sort of capacity of men for this sort of really violent anger and at one point i think it's anna who has some sort of speech that's something to the effect of like well he's a man if you put him in these kinds of situations you can't He's going to do terrible things. I think it's in the context of I can't tell my husband that I've been sexually assaulted because if I do, he will un- he will he will murder the guy who did it because men are uncontrollable and they have these violent passions. And that's just the way that they're made. So if you put a man in a situation where he might enact his violent passion in a violent way, he will do so. And uh, and that this is sort of part and parcel with a lot of different sorts of retrograde ways of thinking about, like, the, the danger that men pose to women. I call it retrograde. Other people might call it current. Uh, am I remembering this correct, Matt? Yeah, you are. It's I, I would add that it is sort of psychologically it's a defense mechanism. It's specifically projection, right? And it's a way of people not dealing with their own desire for revenge by kind right. of loading it up onto a male a, a, a male figure who is fantasized to be violent or you know un, uncontrollable that's a that's a projection of the kind of the uncontrollable desire for for vengeance in yourself and and like things again this gets pretty psychoanalytic but like many things that are feared it is also simultaneously wished for right that the violence could be unleashed on the on the the perpetrator who has done the bad things yeah the truth is uh, is almost or probably harder to take which is that some people do terrible things yep and they had the choice not to do it and they chose to do it as a i think it's more more comfortable somewhat to think that doing horrible things is in people's nature and and as and this is funny because this is kind of the opposite of what I was saying before, right? Which is like I was saying, well, everybody who goes on the internet goes and finds something bad to do pretty, pretty quickly, whether it's something venal or something really harmful. Um, or at the very least, I would say something forbidden, right? Like people go on the internet and when they, even when these things are good, they're forbidden things like Kirk Spock slash fiction, right? Like, oh, I'm going to go do that. Uh, and that's not really, there's not a big, you know, statue of Kirk and Spock making out when Vanellope like goes into the internet. But there should be, because it's at least as important as google is yeah right but at any rate, uh or at least as important as ebay hey um, i mean i'll bet there's almost no target of of uh you know erotic fan fiction of all kinds as disney characters yeah well there right. you go that they don't tell you that that's on the dvd extras and the blu-ray but the point the point is that like the mr bates argument is like Men do violent things because they are men and they get put in situations. And it seems like from the from my perspective, what I would say is, ah, you know, yes, you have urges. You know, people have people have bad feelings. But like, really, if somebody does something really, really bad, like really bad, they chose to do it right. Like they, they didn't necessarily have to do it. And uh, and that's that's scarier um, than than the idea. And that's not to say that, like, I'm not I don't want to necessarily like put the put any sort of blame on people who are like doing these rationalizations. But it's like it's just something that makes the world make sense. And I think this movie is sort of doing that a little bit with the King Kong imagery, because Ralph's insecurity 
is based on the uh, the fear that Vanellope is going to move on and leave him. Uh, and because he doesn't really understand that the friendship could exist despite that. And he doesn't really have anything else in his life. And he's very fixated on her. And this is seen as I think at least seems to be tonally represented as like intrinsically linked to his masculine capacity for anger and violence. Right. Like that that. We know that because Ralph is and of course, this is funny because Ralph isn't just a dude. He's also he wrecks it. That's his thing. It's his jam. Right. Ralph wrecks it. Although this is a movie in which like they don't really they don't really deal with Ralph wrecking things all that much in this movie, which I think is unfortunate. Maybe that's if maybe if there's one thing I wished about this movie, it would be that Ralph more directly wrecked things more often so that we could see Ralph confront his capacity for violence in a different way than he did in the first movie. Before he gets to King Kong status, right? Like before, because like, why does Ralph think, why does Ralph not like the slaughter race? Well, the answer is because he he's trying to be protective of Vanellope. But like Ralph breaks buildings for a living and has dinner with her on tops of heats of rubble, right? He should be fine with the slaughter race, right? Like, I don't understand why he finds that world. I mean, it's scary. I understand because it's scary because it's the unknown. But it really takes away from that aspect of Ralph's character that has this link to sort of this savage instinct and instead attributes it, I think, to the fact that he's a boy Um, and uh, and and that this and and this is, again, linked to the sort of red pill uh, insecurity, you know, the facts of the Internet and the harassment of women on the Internet and how this all dynamic works. Ralph, yeah, maybe maybe Ralph wouldn't become a a giant destructive monster if you weren't friend zoned all the time. No, 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 that's not what I mean. (laughs) What I mean is that Ralph could react to the situation in a variety of ways. (laughs) Like, like just because Ralph is sad, you know, or or disappointed, doesn't necessarily mean that he's going necessarily going to become violent. And the reason this relates to King Kong is because King Kong is is a monster and an animal. Well, yeah. So I was (laughs) thinking that like King Kong, King Kong is is a movie about a clash between nature and civilization that is also a movie about the difference between masculinity and femininity and it seems like those two should map onto each other but in fact they don't right there there are um there are kind of orthogonal axes and you get, you have to kind of understand the conceptual space of that movie as, you know, masculine, civilized, masculine, uncivilized, feminine, civilized, uh, feminine, uncivilized. And they are, you know, locuses of uh, conflict or of fear or of, of things like that. This, this is a movie where civilization is uh, represented by the kind of complex organization of the internet. Right. And the, the, um, Nature is represented by the kind of individual needs, like unmediated uh, individual psychological needs, right? And so you have sort of you have sort of complex organization versus simple needs, and then also a bad mapping of masculine and feminine onto. Uh, I mean, less successful, frankly, than the one in King Kong, right? Um, onto that. Uh, the, the, onto that other opposition of kind of nature versus nature versus culture. You also have a, a, a kind of nuanced um, psychological kind of hurdles for characters who are defined by their arrested development and their kind of one one trait, right? Like Ralph doesn't wreck it because he's violent. Ralph wrecks it because he wrecks it. Like Ralph, Ralph wrecks it because <laughs> yeah. that's what that's you know what his uh, programming is, and he's kind of not a good uh, allegorical avatar for humanity um, in this uh, d- for that for that reason. Hey, I want to circle back to some literary critical terms, which I really ballsed up. Uh, so, okay. uh, fabula and sujet are Russian words that basically mean like uh, story order and narrative order. So, like in Memento. The fabula is the chronological order of events, and sujet is the the order uh, of things in the film. Uh, Récit and discours uh, translate to like speech and narration in French. I think the literary critical opposition I was thinking of was kind of closer to Aristotle's mythos and ethos, which are the, the first two of the six components of tragedy that he identifies in Poetics. Uh, mythos meaning story, plot, and ethos meaning character, but not character in the sense of like list of characters character in the sense of like moral character uh moral character of the agents in the story and moral character of the story it is a weird division 
by the way, because like one of these things is not like the other one. It would be like dividing uh, a person up into like skeleton and mood. You know, yeah. and that's <laughs> right. And that's what the mythos and ethos kind of that that is actually not a terrible metaphor for for mythos and ethos. And so I guess the point I was making was that that things that work at the story don't work at the level of uh, don't work at the level of of character of kind of mood. Yeah. But let's uh, let's turn actually to uh, those those um, frequent targets of erotic fan fiction on the Internet and also avatars of femininity uh, in our our culture um the disney princesses who make a uh uh who make a, a kind of a sensational appearance in this in this film and welcome vanellope uh as as one of one of their own um mark you were you were uh uh eager that we talk talk about this how do you feel like the princesses contributed to wreck it ralph well, let's let's state the obvious here, just just to put it out in the open, right? I mean, it's like really crass cross marketing on behalf of Disney, right? Um, you can think of like a thousand and one different ways to tell a story about the vastness of the internet that doesn't spend so much screen time about Disney princesses. Um, I I felt that it was like kind of shoved down my throat um, that it was like put out. In, in, in frankly kind of obnoxious way. I mean, the sequences and some of the jokes they made were entertaining and there was a kind of, uh, you know, I don't get me wrong. I love me some Disney animated movies and I got, you know, the fan service elements were, um, uh, were not the, the enjoyment of that was not lost upon me, but, uh, I thought it was ultimately to the detriment of, um, the storytelling and, um, the world building around, around the internet that could be that, um, that, so much screen time was spent on the Disney princesses. Now, you guys tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, you're wrong. I don't know. <laughs> Look, I no, because like as I was, I was saying that, I was like, okay, I can anticipate the counter arguments for that, and I'm curious to see if uh, Pete and Matt bring those up, or if I'll come back to them. Later. You're not wrong. I just really liked it. <laughs> That's the thing. Okay. I, okay. I really, I, I enjoyed this so much that I found a, uh, an independent artist who had, uh, printed nap queen t-shirts and I got one for my wife. <laughs> so like the, the, uh, the, like the t-shirt, the, I love the way, I love the way the Disney princesses are portrayed as in their comfy clothes. Uh, I, I felt like there was, it was really, really funny and felt very grounded and honest. And, yeah. Uh, the relationship among the Disney princesses and their relationship with Vanellope was one of my favorite parts of the movie. Yeah, I agree. The reason for it is pretty crass. Um, and 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 in that sense, you know, if if uh, if the movie had a more um, really uh, what is the word that I'm looking for? If if I were more compelled by what the movie had to say about other things, I would be more bothered by the detour that it takes in this area. Uh, but I'm not that compelled by it. Like the movie is kind of an anthology, right? Like the movie is I, like many other um, uh, allegories like this. The movie is a bit episodic, you know, like the fairy queen or like the Pilgrim's Progress or or the Inferno, right? Like any of these sort of like they journeyed through the fantastical realms of heaven and hell, and and they saw all of the good people and all the bad people, and they they tested themselves and their moral uh, their mortal fortitude against various sorts of challenges and enemies. Uh, this is that kind of story, and those stories just tend to be episodic. Um, and so I didn't really mind that the Disney princesses were there, and I did really like uh, that that they were portrayed as human beings, you know, like, and I don't, I mean that in the sense of liking comfy pants, you know, like that's kind of just a basic thing. <laughs> I think that, uh, um, I don't know the, the joke about how Ariel is wearing a shirt now, granted, I mean, and I can, I can also sense the objections to this, you know, Disney is perfectly fine putting Ariel, not in a shirt all the time, except in this movie. So they can go ahead and criticize themselves for it, but they're the ones doing it. Not us. Right. Like, don't tell me that, I, you know, that, that this is my fault, right? Like this is your fault that Ariel's going around in a, in a seashell bra all the time. Um, and so, you know, you put yourself as like the sort of critic, uh, is, uh, it is, it is funny. And it is, of course, a corporation, not individual people, but, um, it felt friendly and grounded and fun. And if, if the movie, if you had taken Ralph kind of out of the center of the movie as much as he is, and had really made this a Vanellope movie, I think you could have done more with the Disney princesses and we could have taken that a couple more levels. And there's, there's a whole other story to tell there and maybe they'll tell it in Wreck-It Ralph three Ralph. Uh, what would it be called? I guess what? Like, um, 
you know, breaking the world. No, it has to have something with wreck in it. Um, although I guess they said wreck and break. Yeah. Shatter. Ralph, crush. Ralph breaks the internet. Right. Exactly. Like, uh, the Ralph, well, sh- sh- Ralph, Ralph shatters the blockchain. <laughs> yes. Finally. Yes. Uh, Ralph takes on Bitcoin. It's just going to go deeper and deeper and more specific into online things. It's just going to be like, <laughs> Ralph is going to freaking take down all the RSS feeds in the whole internet. Um, I don't know, Matt. What do you think about about the Disney princesses? I mean, the they they have a problem in that they have this celebrated IP, and yet it is really not. It's really out of step with um, with contemporary mores, right? Uh, well, a certain kind of contemporary mores. A lot of people don't really have problems with princesses wearing dresses, but certain people do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To be clear, as far as I know, engaging with like um, young girls, particularly like you know my. Uh, my, my nieces uh, who are the Disney princess age, they're still incredibly freaking popular. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like they engage with a very large number of people in a very deep way. Okay. So that's, that's an interesting thing, but those are sort of what girls under the age of 10, right? Over the age of 10 as well too, but oh, yeah, really? you know, of a certain age. Yeah. So, well, okay. The 10 is arbitrary, but uh, maybe it's 13 or 15 or 18 or whatever. But like, imagine that there is like a line, there's an event horizon beyond which your political convictions, uh, you know, make you uncomfortable about your love for the Disney princesses. Right. And like the, this is kind of a brand extension, not just to, not just to kind of bring them in to merchandise or to bring them in to remind us that they're there, but it's it's done in a very specific way, as Pete says, with the kind of the the naturalness and the comfy clothes and the the kind of the sisterhood and the the taking care of each other um, and the sense that like the sense of being off stage, right? Like the sense of being away from uh, the pressures of performing femininity um, in an iconic way. You know that that like that that is an appealing thing to a kind of different demographic slice than the the stock. Disney princesses um, uh, appeal to. So you have this sort of celebrated, beloved IP. And I guess, like, one of the things that this does is create a permission structure for uh for to for to love the disney princesses beyond the point where it might be argued that that people outgrow them um does that make sense i can see where you're coming from yeah definitely you know that right and that like i wonder if this becomes uh I mean, you know, you joke about Wreck-It Ralph 3 in the sequel, but I wonder if this becomes a way of dealing – of one kind of incarnation of the Disney princesses, one kind of, like, mood that they are – that they are available to. Like, it actually – it would probably be really fun, whatever the movie is, where this crew of people interacts with each other uh, in this particular way, right? Like – I'd actually love to see it. I mean, I guess it, I, I'm imagining it being like written by uh, the Arrested Development team or like the community team, and it, it would definitely never be that. Um, so it probably would not be the self-referential, uh, you know, culturally critical um, thing that thing that I always wanted. But the the. Not, you could you could do like fun. a net you could do you could do a pretty sophisticated like Netflix comedy or like Disney Plus comedy series for like teenagers and up. Uh, although I guess for Disney Plus you would want to be for kids that like starts from the premise that all the Disney princesses live in an apartment together or in a how big a big a big man a big house together a big castle that's like and the you know on the, on the outskirts of town and they have to go on adventures together in a world that is populated by Disney characters in sort of a Kingdom Hearts ish kind of way but instead of of Final Fantasy, they're intersecting with like Sex in the City or like you know, or Gossip Girl or something, right? Like that there's a world that these notional princesses live in that is translatable from the world of the princesses that are on the backpacks of the little girls that Mark is talking about. I could see it. I mean, it would it would end up being it could be like Powerpuff Girls, right? Like as in sophisticated, but you don't need to be aware of the sophistication in order to watch it. Um I mean, where are the Powerpuff Girls? They should be there, too. I think they would be. They're great examples of uh, of this kind of storytelling where you take a specific sort of, of trope like this and you and you uh, put it in that kind of scenario. But yeah, I, I could be down. I could totally be down. Um, I, I wanted to. Oh, go ahead. 
Yeah, one other thought on the, on the Disney Princess before I get too far away from this is like, um, I, I was complaining earlier that it's like uh, tangential or far removed from this broader concept of like Ralph and Penelope engaging with quote unquote the internet. Um, that being said, I mean, for a certain demographic, like my nieces, for example, like, you know, when they're of an age to go online, like it's not that inconceivable for a large portion of their online time to be spent engaging with Disney properties and Disney princesses. That's not the worst thing in the world. Um, as we've been talking about, there are far sort of seedier things for them to be engaged with. Um, but at the same time, it again speaks to like a very uh, homogenized, corporatized, corporatified uh, version of the internet um, that is it's, it's removed from what from what the three of us grew up with because you know like from the more uh, wild west uh, open and, and, and wild internet before uh, brands started mining it for, for money and content you know what we had back on those days in, uh, in the old internet we had a little site called overthinking it (laughs) (laughs) that uh, launched as a blog remember blogs remember blogs remember the blogs the good blogs in the old blog days remember the blogs all the blogs that we had they were blogs and man uh, the past i sure live with the past as a presence in my life every waking day and i love it (laughs) signed marcel proust on on antidepressants right like (laughs) all right let's leave it there for tonight please uh check out thank you for listening to the uh the wreck it ralph podcast hope we didn't wreck the internet break the internet or wreck the podcast uh if you would like please check out the overthinking it holiday gift guide for 2018 there's a link in the show notes and also consider becoming an overthinking it member for five bucks a month you get extra podcasts and all kinds of stuff uh like our take on uh Avenger, avengers uh colon endgame uh like our take on uh disney holiday traditions which is one that we recorded last week which was uh, a lot of fun as well speaking of of walt disney studios uh mark and pete thanks very much for being on the podcast i know we will be back next week for more overthinking a podcast till then visit us on the web at overthinking it.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it It probably probably doesn't doesn't deserve oh you know we didn't talk about is the part of the movie where they give the secrets of parenting oh yeah right yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I, I mean it's just as simple as i'm so glad to finally know that it's hello just as everybody as... how are you doing today i'm so glad to get here to talk about ralph breaks the internet thank you so much for inviting me to be on your podcast wow mark that was profound i'm so glad that i heard those secrets you're welcome <laughs>